0: Is the annual targeted rate of return that you've chosen for yourself realistic? Let's talk about it. Hey guys, welcome to the hashtag Get Real podcast. I'm your host, Frederick D. Scott. I am a private equity investor, business consultant, philanthropist, author, and contributing writer for Entrepreneur Magazine. I have over 15 years of experience in the finance industry, and I used to own an investment banking and advisory firm. Currently, I hold designations as a financial modeling and valuation analyst capital markets and securities analyst, commercial banking and credit analyst, and I have a diploma in Islamic finance. And today is hashtag for the free Friday. This is the time during the week where I come on and I teach you things relative to business and finance that I feel that you need to know in a step-by-step format that's easy to understand so you can learn apply and continue your journey toward the goals that you want to achieve in your personal or professional life now before we get into today's topic i need everybody to hit the like button hit the subscribe button hit the bell notification leave me a comment at the bottom of this video to let me know what you think about this content and if you haven't already, and you are an, on an Android phone, I need you to hit the join button. And if you are an iPhone, I need you to hit the link in the description or the link pinned to the comments of this video. So you can join the hashtag real Woke live chat community and be eligible to participate in the hashtag learn to earn cash giveaway where I give away a minimum of $1,000 every month live right here on the hashtag Get Real Woke Podcast. Now, you know, I've neglected to say this before and I need to go ahead and say it now. I wanna thank all of my viewers, all of my subscribers that are sharing my content, talking to other people about my content. We have grown this channel so far to over 2,500 subscribers which is absolutely amazing. And the only reason that's even happening is because of you guys, so thank you. Thank you so very much. Continue to share the content, continue to like the content, subscribe to the content, you know, it's because of you guys that we grow. And so as long as you keep sharing, as long as you guys keep learning and growing, this channel will continue to grow. So guys, thank you. Thank you so, so, so very much for uh, sharing my content. I really appreciate that. Now, now. Let's get into today's topic In today's topic. What we're going to be talking about is what we call the market risk environment. And this goes back into the investing risk profile discussion that I started last week. So we're moving forward in that discussion and I want to be able to uh, help you guys even further. So we're going to go ahead and talk about market risk environment. And when we talk about market risk environment, What we need to be asking ourselves first and foremost is, is the annualized target rate of return that we've chosen that we think we want to make on our money year over year, is that realistic, right? Because when you are thinking about targeted ROR, it's great to create a number or pick a number that you want to make every year, but you have to ask yourself, is that number realistic based on the market environment? And so I want to go over that with you. And I want to talk about how we go about assessing those types of things to see if what the customer is saying, or more importantly, if you're doing this for yourself, if what you are saying is, is realistic. So let's talk about that. So now the first thing that we need to talk about before we, we, we jump all the way and dive into this, we got to talk about benchmarking, right? Because benchmarking is very, 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 very important. Uh, when we're looking at uh, different asset classes, when we're trying to construct a a portfolio of investments for ourselves uh, or others. And uh, it's just a very important thing, right? So let's get into that. What is benchmarking? So the benchmark is a standard against which the performance of a security, a fund or investment manager can be measured, right? So this is the standard. The benchmark is the standard rate of return uh, that, that you have, right. And once we have a standard, right, then we begin to adjust things based against that standard. So let me give you some examples. Okay. So there are five asset classes overall, right? Four of which we're going to talk about today, right? So the five asset classes, and don't worry, I'm actually going to get into all of the asset classes, Uh, you know, and when I get into currency, I'm just going to provide an overview because to be honest with you, most retail investors, especially new retail investors shouldn't be investing in currency because there are a lot of different variables that you have to understand. Uh, Which is why it always concerns me when I see these fly-by-night gurus talking about the forex market, right? Because there's just so many variables and and if you don't understand those variables, it's very 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 easy to to lose money So that being the case, right? I I don't really recommend that the average retail investor get into forex trading uh, Because that's just not a good idea, right? So now when we talk about the five asset classes, what are the five asset classes? They are stocks, which we call, uh, a, 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 on Wall Street, we call equities. Uh, there are bonds, and on Wall Street, we call those fixed income securities. Uh, there's currency, there's commodities, and there is real estate. So there are those are your five major asset classes. Now, we could add cryptocurrency into that but cryptocurrency by its name, cryptocurrency would fall into the currency category, but it is markedly different. And I will have a discussion about cryptocurrency at a later time. Now, before I get any further into these asset classes and talk about the benchmarks in these asset classes, I need you to understand the difference between active investing and passive investing, right? So what I'm explaining to you and what I'm teaching you is to teach you how to properly passively invest for yourself, right? What is the difference between active investing and passive investing? Well, let's look at a couple of examples, right? So active investing would be like a day trader. This is somebody that sits in front of their computer day in and day out. They look at stock charts and they are fixed income charts or options charts, et cetera, et cetera. And with the goal of being able to find a great entry point, find an exit point and make the spread uh, on the growth or or either the downside, if they're, you know, optioning a put uh, and things of that nature. Uh, and, and they do this every day. They do a day in or day out or they do it every few days, etc., etc., depending on what their overall investment strategy is from a technical standpoint. But they're active in their portfolio. They're doing this on a regular and consistent basis basis right a business owner because investing in a business starting a business is an investment right so a business owner when they first start out are definitely uh actively involved in that business they are hands-on day in and day out they are investing their money their time their resources their effort and their energy into growing and scaling that business and and generating profit for that business which then in turn generates profit for themselves. So these are active investments, right? What is a passive investment? A passive investment is when you set up something, you put the money there and you just let it do what it does and, and operate and grow on its own, right? Passive investors are types of people that invest in index funds, mutual funds, you know, various different types of fund products, right? And let professional money managers worry about the day to day of the portfolio analytics and adjusting the portfolio to continue to hit uh, the targeted rate of return that they're seeking to hit based on the uh, level of risk of assets that they're investing in inside of that fund. Now, when you are passively investing, does that mean that you set your money there and you just forget about it for 10 years? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that, you know, you are more event-driven, right? So you understand boom-bust cycles, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in this video, right? And you understand that when the economy is not performing well, then you need to adjust your capital allocation in your portfolio to different areas uh, to be able to continue to uh, uh, hit your targeted rate of return and and you you do this to to hedge downside risk which means that if you're heavy in in equities or stock right and you see that the overall market is not performing well because we're heading into a recession or if you're heavy in real estate and you realize that the market is not performing well and so you know you 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 know that real estate assets are going to see a decline you may pull some of the money out of your real estate fund and put more money into gold or something of that nature because you know that in an economic down cycle, right? We're going to see an uptick in the value of gold because it's a store of value uh, in a downtime, in a down economy, right? So you do this as you see certain things happening in the economy, but it's a very hands-off approach, right? You come in, you know, you see that we're getting ready to hit a recession. Uh, If you have a financial advisor, you're talking to your financial advisor about portfolio adjustments, Uh, If you're doing this yourself, you're making your own portfolio adjustments to be able to continue to hit your targeted ROR, first and foremost. And secondly, to be able to mitigate that downside risk of losses from other areas in your portfolio uh, that aren't performing well. And this is why diversification is so important. But we're going to talk about this a lot more when I get into portfolio construction and how you build a portfolio of investments, how you diversify away risk uh, and, and kind of how those things work. Right. So we're going to talk about that at a later time, but I just wanted to give a little bit of an overview on active versus passive investing. Now let's get into benchmarking. Now, when we talk about benchmarking, right? Cause remember, we got to have a benchmark standard to be able to work from first before we can even assess if our targeted rate of return that we've selected for what we want to make every year is realistic, right? So when we look at the equities market, what is the standard benchmark for the the equities market or the stock market? So the standard benchmark is actually the S&P 500, right? So that's the standard benchmark that we use, right, for for what we're looking at when we're talking about uh, average rates of return, right? Uh, In the fixed income market, it is the U.S. Treasury index, right? So in the bond market, it's the U.S. Treasury index that is the benchmark. Interestingly enough, and just a side note, and, you know, I may do a video specifically, uh, when I get into fixed income, I'm going to talk about, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, pricing practices and how pricing works, but just, you know, a little bit of an overview right now. So when, when bonds are priced, uh, or, or fixed income securities are priced, right. They're priced against the, the 10 year treasury, uh, bond index, right? So, that is what we consider the safe haven. It is the safest investment as a United States citizen that you can that you can make because um, it's backed by the good faith and credibility of the United States government. Generally, in in most times, the United States government has a triple-A credit rating uh, with Standard and Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch, uh, which are investment uh, grade ratings and investment rating institutions that rate companies uh uh and and their uh their their securities that they issue so bonds things of that nature so what we say is that there's nothing more safer than a 10-year treasury bond so every other bond that is priced against the 10-year treasury has a bit of a markup on it and that markup is relative to risk So if it's a company that's issuing a bond that we determine is a very safe bond that has a AAA rating, even though it has the same rating as a U.S. Treasury bond, at the end of the day, there's going to be a small markup uh, on the interest that that company is going to have to pay people because they are not the United States Treasury. They are not backed by the good faith and credibility of the United States government. And so that being the case, there's a little bit more risk, even though the rating classification is the same, there's still a little bit more risk. And so we have to mark that up uh, and they have to pay a bit more interest to a potential buyer of the bond uh, to reflect that risk. And as the ratings drop, the risk increases. So the interest that they have to pay people to attract them to buy those uh, fixed income securities uh, is higher, right? So that's how it works. Remember, I told you that the higher the risk, the higher the potential return, the lower the risk, the lower the potential return. That is a standard uh, policy and principle across uh, different uh, investments, uh, no matter what it is, different asset classes, it's the same. Now, so the, the benchmark standard is the US Treasury Index. For commodities, right, it's the Dow Jones uh, Commodities Index, right? So that is the benchmark uh, that we look at when we're looking at commodities. Now, as a caveat, you need to know that each commodity has its own benchmark index. So if you're investing in gold, there's a benchmark index for that. If you're investing in silver, there's a benchmark index for that. If you're investing in oil, there's a benchmark index for that. But what we start with is an overall index co- comparative to all commodities. We start with that index first, and that's the Dow Jones uh, Commodities Index. For real estate, right, the index that we look at is the Dow Jones U.S. Real Estate Index, right? So that's the benchmark, and so that's what we use, right? Now, let's look at some nice, easy numbers here. Let's start with the targeted rate of return that you selected. Let's say you selected and you said, okay. I wanna make 30% on my money every single year, right? Is that realistic? Is that realistic? Is that possible, right? Is that realistic versus your risk profile? Let's talk about that, right? So the first thing I wanna do is I wanna look at all the different indexes, and I wanna look at the current index return for the last year, and I wanna look at the historical average return over 10 years, right? And then I'm gonna be able to determine if what I'm looking for as a return is realistic. So let's look at that. You've said that you want to make, let's just say, for example, you said you wanna make 30% on your money every year. Okay, if I look at the S&P 500 rate of return for 2020, what I find is that it returned in 2020 an 18.40% rate of return right? So that was the rate of return for 2020. Now, if I look over the historical period, right, of the S&P 500 index, the benchmark, what I find is the historical average rate of return for the S&P 500 index is 10%. So what I find already is that if I my goal is to achieve 30% in stocks alone or uh, or equity securities alone, is unrealistic because the S and P 500 index does not met that out over a 10 year historical period of time and it didn't do it in 2020. So we're going to have a hard time getting to 30% in fixed income. I'm sorry, in equities. Now let's walk into fixed income, right? Fixed income bonds right now, what we find out if we look at the U S treasury index is that. Currently, for the year of 2020, the U.S. Treasury index returned an 8.2% rate of return, right? Historically, what we find is that the U.S. Treasury index returns about a 5 to 6% per annum rate of return, right? So for me, when I see 5 or 6%, I take the middle and I run with that, right, which is 5.5%. Right. So what we find out is, on average, the U.S. Treasury index is returning about a five point five percent rate of return. Now, that's a far cry from a 30 percent targeted rate of return. So we know we can't get there in fixed income either. Let's move on. And as I said, I'm going to skip currency, because when you talk about benchmarking and currency, you're talking about benchmarking currency pairs. And that's a whole different Much more complex set of conversations and variables that you have to consider when you're benchmarking currency pairs. But we'll have a conversation about that at a later time. Now, commodities, right? Here's the interesting thing. The Dow Jones Commodity Index over a one-year period of time this last year, right, returned a 40.60% rate of return. That's exciting, right? You're like, okay, then I'm gonna throw all my money into commodities, right? Great, but hold on. We gotta look at the historicals. The historical, right, over a 10 year period of time, the Dow Jones Commodities Index returns over a 10 year period of time, a negative 2.84% rate of return. So you see how, and I'm going to get into the economics of why this is in a second, but you see how, you know, if you look at one year, there may be a great year, right? And you're excited. But if you throw all your money into that long-term, what we find out is you're going to be at a loss, right? So that's probably not a good way to hit a 30% targeted rate of return. Now in real estate, right? And this is a very interesting number that I'm going to dive into with you, right? So real estate right over the last year the Dow Jones US real estate index shows that the real estate that real estate returned a 30.18% rate of return in the last year right again you're excited you're like there we go I'm investing in real estate hold on because the historical historical return is 7.28% over a 10 year period of time right? Now, you're probably asking, right? And I, and I want to jump into this, right? And, and I want to dive into this. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna dive into this now. Now, and this is going to get into economics and things of that nature, right? But I want to, which I'm going to talk to you about in a little bit. But I kind of want to jump into why it is that there's a 30.18% return, uh, rate of return over the last year, even though there's a rent moratorium in place. Oh man, let's talk about that, right? So now, right, you're wondering, okay, so if there's a rent moratorium in place, we know a lot of people haven't been paying their rent. How is it that the Dow Jones US real estate index showed a 30.18% return over the last year? All right. So now we got to talk about what we call accounting gymnastics, right? So these large uh, real estate funds are, they 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 are gold medal olympians when it comes to accounting gymnastics and what is accounting gymnastics accounting gymnastics is the ability to understand how to uh legally show numbers in a certain way to produce a perceived level of growth that may not really be there right when you really dive into the numbers and let's talk about that so okay if I'm a real estate investor, right, and I own a lot of real estate property, the exciting thing about that is the fact that, right, when you sign a one-year lease with me, what that means, right, is that you owe me that money because I've contracted you in for one year. So if we've agreed that you're going to pay me $100 a month in rent, that means over 12 months, you would have paid me 120 dollars right now irrespective of whether you actually pay that money on time what i can do right and us gap allows this from an accounting standpoint right and here we go with accounting gymnastics so there is a difference between revenue and cash flow let's talk about that because this is why and i laughed when i looked at this number because you know i always I always want to make sure I have the most up-to-date stats for you guys when I come on and do this. So I chuckled like when I looked at this number, I actually kind of rolled, I kind of like laughed and I rolled in my chair laughing because it's hilarious. But here's the thing, right? Okay. So in order to show a 30.18%, that means that this is what it means. That means that what they did, and this is legal, you can take rental contracts and you can book, right? As revenue, the projected yearly or annual rental payments on your balance sheet is revenue. You can do that. That's legal because you have a legal binding contract that says that they have to pay you the money. So you can book that as revenue. However, 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 right? Cash flow represents the amount of money that actually hit the company's bank account, right? So, revenue can look like one thing and cash flow can look like a completely different thing. So, for example, I bet you, and I'm actually going to take the time to do this over the weekend, I'm going to pull some balance sheets on some of these real estate funds. And I bet what I'm going to find is that a lot of these large real estate companies booked revenue, but when I look at their cash flow number, it's going to be a markedly different thing. And if I just the and if I adjust the rate of return for cash flow metrics instead of revenue metrics, what I'm going to find is that the overall index real return, right? Cash flow-based return metric will be a lot lower than 30.18% so there is an adage on wall street that says that when there's blood on the street you buy real estate why so what does that mean when there's blood on the street you buy real estate when the economy is performing poorly you buy real estate why because when the economy is performing poorly real estate prices drop so you can get real estate cheaper and if you hold on to it of course over time real estate value is going to appreciate. So you're going to appreciate an equity value and don't worry, I'm going to do a whole course on real estate and how real estate works. Uh, so I'm going to do a whole series on that. So you'll understand equity. You understand a lot of these metrics more better when I get there. Right. But, The interesting thing about this, right, is, okay, so you have bought this real estate, you're holding it, you've got renters in there. So what a lot of these companies are doing is buying real estate that has existing tenants in it, right? So that way they can book that revenue and they can show their investors, look, even in a down market, we're growing, right? We're still performing. We're still doing well. That's why you don't pull your money out. That's why you keep your money invested, right? Because the goal is to keep investment dollars in the fund So that way, right, you have more what we call dry powder to put into the market. Dry powder is capital. More dry dry powder to put into the market to scoop up more real estate assets. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? And this is why a lot of real estate uh, holders, uh, real estate owners are crying about rent moratoriums right now. They're hoping that the government at some point, the federal government or the various state governments are going to bail them out. Right. And help them make those mortgage payments. Right. Because the reality of the situation is this. If they're not able to secure a bailout, then what do you think is going to have to happen to the balance sheet when the accounting year closes? Right. And they have to actually report numbers. What they'll have to do. Right. Because accounting gymnastics only works for a little while. Right you can book revenue throughout the year right but at the end of the year when the accounting year closes and we have to reconcile everything for auditing purposes right because these large funds get audited every year by third party cpa and accounting firms like kpmg deloitte price waterhouse coopers etc etc right so what happens here is, is this, right? So at the end of the year, when those when if the government hasn't bailed them out and those tenants have not paid rent, they have to restate their projections or their balance sheet numbers. They have to restate them to the fact. Right. So the truth, you can delay the truth, the, 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 the reality of the numbers for a little while. But at the end of the day, if that cash flow doesn't reconcile to that revenue line item, that means that the money you were expecting to get, you didn't get. So you now have to adjust to the real numbers. And so it's going to be very interesting for these large real estate funds. If the government doesn't bail them out. Right what their balance sheet numbers are going to look like when they have to restate those balance sheets. Right. It's going to be hilarity. And so what I predict, right, is if the government doesn't bail them out, that performance metric number that we see for this last year is going to be markedly lower uh, in the next year. Uh, and that's just it all to the story. That's just reality. Right. So I just wanted to share that with you as well. Now, now, now let's say that, right? Because we're talking about benchmarking still, let's say that you decided that you were going to put an equal amount of money into all four of the asset classes that I've named, right? So stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate, right? So you're going to put 25% of your money in each, right? To get you to 100%. Now, what we'll find out then is for the last year, across those four benchmarks the average rate of return was 24.35 percent however the historical average rate of return is 4.99 percent so what we're already finding out right is that a 30 percent targeted rate of return uh annually to do that consistently is 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 very unlikely right so you have to adjust your target rate of return to the market risk environment, right? To the market environment, what's going on in the numbers, what's going on in the benchmark averages. Now, are there funds that beat the benchmark averages? Sure, a lot of index funds will be, they'll be around 10 to 12% uh, that are that S&P 500 index funds will be around 10 to 12% on a 10 year average historical uh, review uh, of the average rate of return. Right. So yes, it's possible. And and, and, and it's possible to do that and, and, and keep the risk profile relatively similar. However, to hit a 30% year over year, over year growth, to have the potential to do that, you're going to have to absorb a lot more risk, right? And absorbing that level of risk, you have a much higher probability of actually losing your principal as opposed to actually getting the potential rate of return, right? So that's why when I told you last week that the goal of investing is to maximize capital appreciation, while mitigating risk to its lowest common denominator, meaning that you wanna make as much money as possible while taking the least amount of risk possible. One of the things I focused you on first and foremost was capital preservation, making sure that there's a greater than not likelihood that in the worst case scenario, you'll at least get back the principal you invested. You have to stick to that first. And that means that, you know, you'll have to adjust your perception of reality when it comes to selecting a targeted rate of return that is going to work relative to your appetite for risk. Right. And for your preservation of capital. Right. Requirements. That's that's very important. Now, now that we've got gone through benchmarking and I hope everybody kind of understood the benchmarking right. Uh, I'm trying to break this down as simply as I possibly can, but I know that this is, you know, it's starting to get a little bit more complex at this point. And that's why, you know, investing, it takes, you know, a lot of, of time and research and knowledge and learning because this is not something to take lightly. There are a lot of factors that go into this, but now let's get into interest rates and inflation, right? And this is where you have to have a, a, a baseline understanding of economics, right? So economics becomes a very important part of, of investing and understanding, you know, when you get into portfolio construction, what you're looking at when you're trying to do your portfolio construction. Okay. So let's talk about interest rate and inflation. Cause this is the second part of this, the economics, right? So first of all, right. When we talk about the interest rate, what are we really talking about? Honestly, we're talking about the Fed rate, right? So what is the Fed rate? The Fed rate is the interest rate at at which financial institutions can borrow money from the Federal Reserve Bank. Why is the Fed rate important? The lower the Fed rate is, the cheaper it is for financial institutions to borrow money. When financial institutions can borrow money cheaply, that is reflective in the interest rate that they charge people that borrow money from them. So if the, if the financial institutions, the banks, for example, are borrowing money cheaper, then that means in theory that you get to borrow money cheaper, right? But ah, there's a trick to that, right? So, so why does the fed lower interest rates? The fed lowers interest rates because what they want to be able to do is get allow financial institutions to borrow cheap capital so they can then lend out cheaper capital to companies to be able to fund things like expansion r d things of that nature to spurn economic growth so generally what happens is when we're in an economic recession right the fed lowers the interest rate and sometimes they lower it all the way to zero right to be able to stimulate economic growth in the United States, right? So that's a very important thing to understand. But I want to jump into the truth of the Fed rate and how financial institutions work. Now, in theory, it would then say that, okay, the Fed rate is low. Financial institutions are borrowing money cheap. And that means that when I walk into the bank, I'm going to be able to qualify for a loan at a cheaper interest rate. And in theory, you would be correct in practice. It doesn't exactly work that way. And why is that right? It is true that large companies, large funds will be able to borrow money cheaper, but you as a consumer will have a much harder time securing a loan in a down economic environment. Why? Because the consumer is the risk to the financial institution. So here's how i'll explain it to you like this a bank would rather lend a hundred million dollars to one company than lend a thousand dollars to one consumer in an economic recession why is that right because a company that can take on borrowing of a hundred million dollars is a stalwart in the industry this is a company that's been around longer than 10 years They have an institutional grade credit rating. They have year over year track record of performance in managing and deploying capital strategically. And most importantly, they have a year over year demonstrated track record of being able to satisfy interest payments and in the end, satisfy the the overall debt obligation and return the capital to the financial institution, right? So they're a much safer bet than... You know johnny or joe lunch bucket or jill lunch bucket right who's coming in to borrow a thousand dollars right and you know doesn't have a job or maybe in danger of losing their job because it's a recession and in a recession right companies tend to pare back on employees to save expenses to be able to stay afloat and continue to grow So even though, so the goal in economic theory, so so the goal in economic theory is by lowering rates, we're going to be able to lend out money cheaply to the financial institutions, who will lend out money cheaply uh, to commercial businesses and retail consumers to stimulate the economy by lending money to commercial institutions or commercial companies, right? These commercial companies are going to be able to retain employees, hire more employees, and we're going to create an economic boom cycle that's going to see the market go up. And over time, generally, that does happen. But when you're in the beginning and what I'll say, the beginning and mid-stages of an economic recession, that is not how it works at all, right? So that's the economic theory. In practice, it doesn't really work like that. Generally, what tends to happen is, The the companies begin to cut costs where they can. They use borrowed capital to be able to uh, lower the cost of, of product development, expand into other areas of product, acquire companies, things of that nature to be able to continue to show a growth metric. Because remember, these companies that are borrowing large amounts of capital from banks are usually publicly traded, right? So, you know, if the shareholders aren't happy, then, you know, and if the company isn't growing, then the board of directors and senior management aren't able to get their fat bonuses anymore. So they do things to create growth on the balance sheet so they can show the overall shareholder. And more specifically, the big block, large shareholders that have invested substantial amounts of money into them, like hedge funds and things of that nature. Look, we're growing. So we've earned our bonus for the year. So give us the money. Right. Now, what you don't see is that in order to continue to show that growth, they've pared back in employees. So they've laid employees off. They've done a number of things that actually further drive us into a deeper recession. Right. So I want to put that out. So this is a little bit of an economic lesson for you, because it's important to understand how the Fed rate works and how it translates into a real environment right and i need you to understand this because understanding this as an investor is very very important when you're doing when you're doing portfolio construction which again we'll talk about later now so i wanted to talk about that first right cuz that's a very important reality that you need to understand is, is the interest rate now i want to talk about inflation Aha! Let's talk about inflation, baby! What is inflation? What is inflation? So first of all, to understand what inflation is, we have to first understand what GDP is or what gross domestic product is, right? What is gross domestic product? What is GDP? Okay, so GDP is the monetary value of all finished goods and services made within a country during a specific period of time, right? So that is what GDP is. GDP is the overall value of the products and services that we create as a country, right? Now, when you understand that, then good economic theory would tell you, right? Good sound economic principles would tell you that we as a country would should not print more currency into the market or or deploy more currency into the market than we have GDP to support. So in theory then, We should have a one-to-one ratio on on currency, the amount of currency that circulates in our economy, right? Versus the amount of GDP and the value of the overall GDP that we have as a country. So those things should be equal. Now, if you've ever taken an economics course or if you've ever read a newspaper like this here, Wall Street Journal, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal pretty regularly, right? Um, but if you've ever, you know, read, you've learned already. And, you know, if you watch the news long enough, you know that no country in the world, right, produces exactly the amount of currency relative to their GDP. They always produce more currency than they have GDP to support. And this is what it, what inflation stems from. Right. So when you present when you when you when you print more currency than you have gdp to support what it does is lower the value of that currency in purchasing power in the international market right so what i what we call inflation is a hidden tax and that hidden tax is to the consumer the retail investor the retail everyday person the mom and pop of society. And I'm going to explain to you why that is and how that works. Right. So one of the things, and, and this is what really pushes up inflation and which is when I tell you the inflation number currently based on the historical average, you know, it, 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 you're just going to be like, wow. Okay. Look, so, so, so what federal reserve banks and the department of treasury do when we're in an affla- in a in a in a in a down economy or we're in an economic refe- recession, is they like to engage in a practice talk called quantitative easing. What is quantitative easing? It sounds really complicated, but I'm gonna simplify this for you. Quantitative easing just simply means printing more money. Print more money. If we just keep printing money and putting it into the economy and circulating it through the economy, things are gonna get better. But GDP is not is not expanding. Oftentimes in an economic recession, GDP is actually contracting. It's getting smaller, right? And so if the GDP number is getting smaller, but you just keep printing more and more and more and more currency, what do you think happens to the value of that currency in purchasing power? It actually goes down. So when you look at the current inflation rate in the United States, the current inflation rate now is 5.4%, which is asinine, right? And but the historical rate on average is about three percent. So what we're seeing, right? What we're seeing in the economy is that you know we're 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 just between the Fed rate and, and printing of qu- and quantitative easing, which is nothing more than just continuing to print currency uh, like a madman, right? Uh, uh, we're actually raising the inflation rate. Now, how does that hurt you, right? How does that hurt you? And why is this important when you're thinking about, uh, your targeted rate of return? Okay. So let's say that you have a hundred dollars under a mattress right now. And let's say that in a year from now, you decide to take that hundred dollars out. Now that hundred dollars at the time that you got, it was a hundred dollars in purchasing power. So now let's say in a year from now with a 5.4% inflation rate, right? you go to take that that same $100 and you go to the store. What you'll find is when you really look at it is that that $100 doesn't buy the same $100 worth of goods that it bought when you first put it under the mattress. Now the purchasing power of that has depreciated by 5.4%. And so just from one year to the next, right? you have a 5.4% depreciation in purchasing value. And so this is where, you know, we understand the net present value of money uh, on Wall Street. And we'll get into the net present value of money at a later period in time. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? Let me drive this point to you a little bit further. International uh, uh, supply rates are not matched on par with, with the United States dollar. So just because we're printing more currency doesn't mean that prices on, let's say oil or lumber, things of that nature are going to, uh, um, adjust based on the amount of money that we're printing. No, it doesn't work that way. Right. So oil prices, they do fluctuate, right? but they don't fluctuate like our currency to to match our currency printing rate. No. So what happens is right. And this is why inflation is a hidden tax that you must understand, right? What happens is we're printing a whole lot of money that we don't have GDP to support. And what ends up happening here is that the price of a barrel of oil is the price of a barrel of oil. If you print money that you don't have GDP to support, Well, now you just have to spend more dollars to buy that same barrel of oil. So now when when the gas station imports that barrel of oil and it gets into gasoline, when you go to the gas station, right, where you were used to paying $3 for a gallon of gas, now you might see the price go up to $5 to a gallon of gas. Why? Because now, right, what happens is the company that's selling you the gas has to make up the price difference in because of inflation, right. That they had to pay for that barrel of oil because they had to spend more us dollars to buy that same barrel of oil that they had to spend less us dollars for a year before, right. They have to be able to maintain their profit margin. So what they do is pass the cost of inflation to the consumer at the pump by raising the price per gallon of gas. So you pay for the inflation, right? So what I need you to understand is where do you think this PUA money, these stimulus checks and all of that came from? Yes, people that got PUA and stimulus checks were dancing in the street, but you don't realize that you're paying the cost for that at the gas pump, at the grocery store, at the clothing store, when you purchase a house, because the cost of goods goes up to be able to outpace or keep up with the inflation that we are seeing in our economy. So you as the consumer are the one that pays for that, right? So I need you to understand that because that's very, 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 very important. So if you made it this far in the video, congratulations. I hope you learned something right here that was very important. So now how does this relate to your a realistic targeted rate of return and understanding the market at risk environment and your targeted rate of return? So when I create a targeted rate of return, let's say I want to make, I say my targeted rate of return every year I want is 13%. Let's just say that, right? That is my gross targeted rate of return. I now have to adjust that rate of return for inflation. So now if inflation is, let's say, 5.4%, we're going to round that down to 5%. Now, if I have a 13% targeted rate of return, once I adjust for inflation, right? what we find out here is that my inflation-adjusted return is 8%. So your inflation-adjusted return is 8%. So that means that you always have to consider inflation in your targeted rate of return, right, to be able to make sure that you're hitting the targeted rate of return that you want to hit, right? So you have gross targeted rate of return, which we covered last week, and now we have an, ingested, an inflation adjusted return, which calculates inflation. The last thing that you have to calculate is your taxes, right? What's your tax rate on capital gains, right? But you should be talking to a tax advisor about that. Someone that is either an enrolled agent or CPA, right? Uh, so yeah. So that's that now that was really all I have for y'all today. So to recap, right. When you're, when you're thinking about is your targeted rate of return realistic. The first thing you have to do is look at your benchmarks, right? The second thing you have to look at is the interest rate and inflation. You have to understand what's going on in the economy. So putting those two things together will help you understand A is your target rate of return realistic and B it helps you be able to calculate an an, an inflation adjusted rate of return. All right, guys. So listen, that's all I have for you all today. That's all I wanted to share with y'all today. I hope you guys learn from this video. I hope you grow from this video. I hope you learn some very, very, very important things. And I hope you're beginning to understand now as we're going through this, that you just don't jump into investing willy-nilly, right? There are a lot of different factors that you have to consider and a bit of education that you need to have, a bit of knowledge uh, and background that you need to have to be able to do this well for the long term, which is the goal, right? You wanna be able to see year over year growth uh, on your investments long term, because that's how you're going to be able to retire into the comfortable lifestyle that you want to retire into. Okay, guys. So just, you know, A, keep listening, keep learning, keep growing. Thank you guys so much for listening to me, taking the time to watch these videos. I appreciate y'all so much. As always, as I always say, make sure you hit the like button, hit the subscribe button hit the bell notification at the bottom of this video to let me know, uh, to definitely turn on those notifications. Yo, leave me a comment at the bottom of this video to let me know what you think, right? And if you haven't already and you're on an Android phone, make sure you hit that join button, right? And if you are on an iPhone, make sure you hit the link in the description or the link that is going to be pinned to the comments at the bottom of this video so you can join the hashtag real woke live chat community and be eligible to participate in a hashtag learn to earn cash giveaway where i give away a minimum of one thousand dollars every month live right here on the hashtag get real woke podcast hey yo and for all of y'all that caught caught that yeah man my voice squeaked a little bit at when i was doing my ending right there yeah you know i get a little excited and when i get a little excited you know you gotta understand that i'm like 32 pounds soaking wet right and with that in mind baby every now and then that voice cracks but one thing about it it's always gonna be the gun show baby and everybody's invited let's go let's get it all right y'all so with that in mind i'm out until the next hashtag for the free friday do